Hello everyone, welcome to our first 2022 episode of Coffee Chats with Scientists. I'm very excited to announce that Coffee Chats with Scientists will have brand new series this year. We are collaborating with UCL BAME Awarding a project that is working towards creating an inclusive environment and ensuring there is equality in degree outcomes and experience of all undergraduate students, regardless of their ethnicity. This is to tackle the significant gap that currently exists between UK domicile BAME and white students despite entering UCL with the same higher entry qualifications. This is a long-standing problem across the sector and there are many different factors contributing to this gap. Dr. Alvina Qureshi is the Faculty of Medical Sciences lead on the project and is working to understand the complex nature of this problem and implementing methods to resolve it. Part of that work is to increase visibility of role models from a BAME background to improve students' sense of belonging. On the podcast, we're excited to bring you episodes featuring speakers from diverse backgrounds. They will share their personal experiences of their own career path and speak about their successes and some of the challenges they were faced with. Today's speaker is Mr. Asif Minir. Asif is a consultant neurological surgeon and andrologist and clinical lead for urology at UCLH. He's also an Honorary Associate Professor at University College London and Honorary Secretary for the British Association of Urological Surgeons. Welcome, Asif. How are you today? Very well, Denise. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you so much for coming. Um, And I'm very excited to have you here today. I always start with asking your favourite coffee, tea or decaf drink before we go into our more important questions, I'll say. Yeah, well, I've got one ready here. Uh, for the hot drinks, I'm a decaffeinated tea person. Um, oh, I've been off caffeine for a number of years now. It's not great for your bladder. So I tell patients that. So I thought I might as well uh, practice that myself. So I just introduced you very briefly, but there's so much more to know about you. It would be great if you can tell us more about yourself and your early years growing up in the UK. Yeah, um, I come from an uh, an immigrant family. My father came to the UK in the late 1950s um, as uh, a sort of manual worker, um, and the rest of uh, his um, uh, well, his uh, my mother and a couple of my older siblings joined uh, in the early 60s. So um, it's been sort of several decades um, that our family's been in the UK. I was born uh, in the Midlands, so my early years um, were in the Midlands, um, and then later on moved uh, to the southeast and grew up just outside London. Um, so we, you know, we've been through the education system uh, in the UK. Um, you know, on a personal level, I mean, both my parents didn't really have a formal education, uh, so it's surprising from you know a family of seven siblings. Um, all of us got educated, all of us went to university. Um, so that was uh, probably just the done thing. Um, we weren't, you know, uh, a very well-off family. So I think education was the route to develop a career. Um, so, you know, my parents were, um, were, when some of the Thatcher years kicked in, didn't have a job. So we lived off benefits, and but I was lucky to go to a local grammar school. From there, I was um, uh, probably the second person ever to get into medical school. And um, I started uh, medical school at uh, Manchester University. 
since today's episode aims to discuss awarding gap, I'm wondering whether this gap existed during your time at Manchester University. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you um, raise that because uh, I wasn't aware of it until I got involved in the awarding gap committee. And um, when I look back to my own personal experience at Manchester, um, there was a disproportionate number of students who dropped out in the first and second year who were from ethnic minorities. And then if you look at those who sat their final exams at medical school, um, I think in my year, out of all of the students who failed their finals, probably about 90% were from ethnic minorities. So, I mean, it's less than a you know a dozen people fail, but you know some of them that I knew were from similar backgrounds to myself, who were um, you know working class, you know ethnic minorities, didn't probably have the same role models or the support you know from family, but um, you know it, it was noticeable, and I think even then Manchester University raised it. You know they were looking into why a lot of the ethnic minority students uh, were not making it through in their finals i don't know where, where that led to anything but um obviously you know it, it was an issue then as well right yeah what do you think about the current status then like if you um because you work for ucl as well now maybe you have different opinions i mean you know I mean, ucl is a fantastic institution uh but i mean the data is the data and if there is a yeah statistical difference then I think you know we should congratulate UCL for um, looking into this and you know having an awarding gap uh, committee to try and you know raise awareness and try and ensure that there is equality you know across the board um, so you know obviously it's been addressed and we may find out you know there's more to it than, than we, we knew but um, I think you know, just admitting that there, there, there may be an issue, at least it's a step forward. Yeah, I completely agree. And obviously, talking with you, like, or role models like you is also important to raise this issue, I guess. Um, going back to your background a little bit, I know that you're highly involved in research. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this today, since I'm a um, junior researcher, I'll say. Yeah, no, I mean, our, our research is very niche. Um, I mean, my subspecialty is andrology, which is anything really to do with male genitalia. And the reason why I got involved is I did my own MD at the Wolfson Institute um, at UCL to function using an in vitro model and uh, translating that into the management of... Uh, priapism in humans so this is you know problems with prolonged erections that occur so mm -hmm. that sort of starts off my interest in andrology and then subsequently you know i finished my training uh, in oxford and then came back to do a fellowship here at ucl and you know now um i've been here almost 14 years um with a you know easily the, one of the largest andrology units in the world and we've got a good output um every year um, in terms of publications and ongoing research. So my focus at the moment is mainly on, um, so on a clinical level, we've got an NIHR-funded uh, trial which will look at um, laparoscopic versus open groin dissections uh, for penile cancer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we also have uh, a number of penile cancer related projects because we have a, a UCL uh, biobank that's got you know hundreds of uh, penile cancer tissue specimens that we've been working on. So we've, got, we've had collaborations um, with the Cancer Institute, we've got collaborations at King's, we've got uh, just developing collaborations in Cambridge to um, work on this tissue. So we've, we were the first group to perform whole exome gene sequencing on penile cancer. Um, we have a number of clinical uh, uh, projects that we've published on. Uh, last year we had 30 publications you know, so we we um, you know exactly. we always make sure that our output um, is high in volume, and we're the, probably the leading research centre uh, for penile cancer in the whole country. So um, the specialty subspecialise into uh, about twelve centres um, that do penile cancer, and uh, we kind of lead on a lot of the uh, the projects. That that's amazing. Probably in the world, then. I presume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We're, we're unique in the UK that we centralise it into specialist centres. Yeah. How many people are we talking about in the centre with you? Um, what to work to collaborate with me? For penile cancer, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we um, so we have always had you know a research fellow or you know two research fellows. Uh, we have a clinical fellow um, uh, that works with myself and. Uh, my colleague uh, Hussein Al Najjar. Um, so they will do uh, clinical projects. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a Margaret Spittle fellow given to us by UCLH uh, last year, uh, Fabio Castiglione, and um, he's been recognised for for his research, which has been good. Um, and then we've got affiliations uh, with the with the lab network. So we had um, uh, postdocs at the Cancer Institute. Um, working with uh, Professor John Kelly, uh, who helped us with the gene sequencing. Um, so the, the, the sort of the, um, our group changes. At the moment, we're doing quite a lot of pre-malignant work with uh, Professor Chris Bunker, who's one of the dermatologists interested in genital dermatology. And he's got an MD student now, George Kravis, who's working uh, with us to look at lichen sclerosis and pre-malignant disease uh, on the foreskin. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have a number who um, swap and change, but we've always got someone uh, working on, on our projects and um, we continue to have good output each year. Yes, and it's a very diverse group from what I understood, which makes the research evolve every year and keeps on you know, going and you have different aspects from each group, which is amazing. That's what you want for your research group. Um, yeah. I presume you had challenges um, during the successful career path, especially I think maybe during your fellowship applications. I was wondering, like, is that, I mean, maybe you didn't, but I'm asking whether there's any challenges you want to share today. I mean, there's always challenges. And one of the sort of the early um, piece of advice that someone gave me, you know, because you're a bit naive, you don't really know what the real world is like. (laughs) Um, There were a lot of disillusioned people when I came out of medical school uh, the system was a little bit different there were a lot of people that weren't having career progression and you know they used to blame the fact that they're you know BAME or you know ethnic minorities um, that weren't progressing but there was a a system then whereby people had to move on from registrar grade to the limited number of senior registrar jobs a lot of those were all about you know knowing the right people you know your face you know fits 
And unfortunately, there was a bit of a brain drain from the UK. Some people went to America, some people did other specialties because they couldn't get on in surgery. Mm -hmm. But I think that got transformed once calmanization came in. So this is uh, Kenneth Kalman's um, training scheme whereby everything becomes streamlined. You do five years in the subspecialty once you get selected. So then the kind of bottleneck went from going from a junior doctor into a registrar grade. But what, it, what I did see was a lot more people getting into surgical specialties because um, there were, you know, sort of very few in my time that were sort of getting on to senior registrar jobs. And, uh, you know, some of my, you know, uh, role models were actually have actually ended up at UCL. So, um, uh, so Professor Shaq Saeed is one of the ENT professors. Um, he was uh, a senior registrar when I was a medical student, and he was one of the very few ethnic minorities doing ENT at that level. Um, and Professor Munza Mugal, who has just retired, but he was a uh, registrar when I was a, uh, a medical student. And again, you know, uh, he moved on in colorectal surgery, which again was notoriously difficult. So you saw these individuals, you know, make it through the system and you're thinking, you know, well, actually it looks difficult, but these guys have made it through. So, you know, once calmanization happened, uh, it was a little bit easier compared to the old, you know, the old system. Um, but that's where the challenge first started. And, you know, I, you know, I applied a few times. I didn't get a, a registrar number straight away. Um, and then this is where, you know, someone said, look, you have to be, you know, a lot better. If you're an ethnic minority, you've got to, you know, you've got to work, you know, extra hard, you know, it's a bit difficult. There's these challenges and, you know, having been born and brought up in the UK, you, you didn't really accept it because you think that it should be equal for everyone. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, in that time, it probably wasn't, you know, I don't think it was um, as fair as it as it should have been. Um, and um, but, you know, once you start incorporating uh, a point based system, you know, where you get anonymized applications now, you get fairer scoring. Mm -hmm. I think it is, you know, it is a fairly reasonable system that uh, you can say, well, everyone has a fair chance now. Um, so, you know, things have improved over the years. I mean, we're looking at, um, you know, two decades now. They have definitely improved. Um, and I think, you know, with um, incentives like, you know, so this things will continue to, you know, improve hopefully for the next generation. Um, and uh, it's always a positive steps uh, when they're being addressed, acknowledged and then addressed. Yeah, yeah. But did you did you have any specific, like, can you give us maybe tips to overcome these challenges that you had? Obviously, you said that you had role models, but other than mm. that, in general, for yeah. maybe your current research, like, how do you maintain your, um, so I'll say, path and you know, success or yeah, I mean, you've got to stay motivated. Yeah, you know, you've got you got to stay motivated. You've got to motivate others. And um, if you, you know, make sure that you understand that you will get some knockbacks and rejections, mm -hmm. um, then you just got to keep trying. So, I mean, although, you know, we've been funded for an NIHR project, I mean, this is the first time that the NIHR has funded a penile cancer research project. Amazing. Um, so this is a, a breakthrough because mm -hmm. it's a rare cancer. I mean, this is a cancer that affects about six to 700 people uh in the uk a year 
Yeah. Um, it's, you know, notoriously underfunded because they don't see it as a disease priority. Of course. But yeah. we've, you know, we just tried and tried and tried. And, you know, after 10 years of trying, eventually there was a breakthrough. So, you know, you, you can't you can't just use rejections and knockbacks and blame it on your colour or ethnicity. You just have to accept, look, you're unsuccessful, but you've got to keep trying. And the same thing goes for, you know, students who um, are not doing very well in their you know, in their course or mm-hmm. uh, they feel that, you know, they're not going to get the degree uh, that they want. I mean, they just you just got to keep the effort going. Never give up. You know, if you give up, then you're just going to end up failing in other steps. But you just got to, you know, keep going, stay motivated and accept that, you know, life isn't perfect. You know, you're not always going to be successful. You're going to be unsuccessful in that job that you've always wanted or you're going to be unsuccessful in that grant application. And um, all you've got to do is just brush your, you know, dust yourself off and um, just try again. And, you know, one day, you know, you just need a few, you know, breakthroughs and um, you tend to find that success comes um, your way. And, um, you know, again, you know, I think another uh, role model uh, at UCL is um, Professor Sir Ali Zumla. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, he's a remarkable infectious diseases professor who, you know, has got an interest in TB, suffered from TB meningitis as a junior doctor, oh. uh, you know, came back and, you know, he's so productive. He's, you know, internationally well-known, gets international prizes. And this is after almost, you know, not being able to do anything for, you know, a few years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and you, you look at people like that um, and you think, well, look, you know, they just carried on, um, mm-hmm. accepted rejection. Uh, stayed motivated, wanted to make a difference and uh, kept going. So my advice to anyone uh, out there, you know, who is, you know, sort of BAME or ethnic minority um, is, look, you know, you've got to just accept that there will be, you know, um, obstacles, but just uh, keep keep yourself going. And uh, eventually, you know, you can't tell what the time frame is, but eventually it'll, it'll work out. Yeah, 100%. And that's why it's important to talk about the rejections as much as our Mm. success, because people shouldn't think that there's only, you know, success stories. But it's also if you successful in one grant, there's maybe 20 rejections. So it's important Mm. to bring that up. Are there any other milestones that you would like to achieve next? Um, Well, I mean, I've... um... Up until now, you know, done local roles. I've done national roles, and you know, I, I'm part of international committees. Um, I think my next one is to probably raise enough funding to have a sustainable project in uh, in penile cancer going forward, um, mm-hmm. because you know, there's plenty of you know, sort of um, charities and. Uh, uh, you know, uh, income generation for various other cancer groups. You know, you look at breast cancer, you look at, you know, various, you know, uh, prostate. prostate cancer. Yeah, I mean, they will have a lot of support, um, but sort of rare male genital cancers, you know, this is testes, penile, you know, doesn't quite get as much, uh, you know, media profile or interest. Yeah, it's just, it's the nature of the disease. No one really wants to talk about their male genitals. But I think, you know, society is changing and uh, one of the, uh, you know, sort of uh, the major uh, landmarks was obviously, you know, Viagra 
which opened up sexuality and the discussion about sexuality in this country because we're a pretty reserved nation but i think it's starting to open up mm-hmm. i think social media is starting to you know open people up and um hopefully you know with all of this we would um you know expect that more people will come forward when they do have genital disease because it's not a taboo subject so um i'm hoping that you know uh, the nrhr project will get this our velrad study will get kick-started so that's overseen by ucl and uh, on the back of that you know we can just continue to develop uh, a, a sustainable research program going forward i mean um, i'm not going to be around to oversee it forever but what i would like to do is to um, start it off and uh, ensure that there'll be someone continuing it uh, well into the future that this sounds amazing because it will be quite inspiring for people like me i'm also working on a rare um tumor type and mm. it's difficult to get funding for it mm. it's so difficult to publish your work because it's not as popular as covid colorectal mm. prostate so it's it's inspiring to hear this sort of initiation so i think yeah. you're doing really well and i hope you get a very sustainable funding that continues um over the next decades um final question will be is how do you manage your work-life balance i think it's very important to um hear that from you yeah i mean um it it is difficult as a clinician and trying to run a research program i mean you're trying to you know you're trying to do everything you're juggling a lot of things throughout the day um i must admit with covid as well i mean the last two years are probably some of the busiest years i've ever had in my career because you're sort of managing um at the department you're navigating through the covid pandemic um as well as delivering your clinical service and trying to maintain your research profile um so you know carrying on with you know developing that portfolio um so i must admit you know i think my last two years this work life balance has not been as great as i'd like however um i've probably got that little bit of extra time because i'm not going to overseas meetings i've not been on holiday Uh, with the family for two years just because of travel restrictions I just we just felt that you know it sounds more hassle than it's worth um, so that's left a bit more time at home that I would not normally have spent but what I would say is um, you need to get your priorities right I mean there's a you know a huge um, divorce rate generally in in medicine um, and um you know what i what i tend to do is um make sure that i make time for i've got two two kids you know um make time for them uh, ensure that you know you're on top of things there um you know we we go on holiday we used to go on holiday together until covid hit but hopefully we'll you know we um we'll, we'll sort of reinstate that this year um and also make time for yourself you have to have some time to do things that you enjoy and the things that i enjoy you know is, is watching sport live and also on the tv i go to sporting events with some of my colleagues you know mm-hmm. watch the cricket watch the football um you need to switch off um because one of the main problems is that you try and do too much too soon i mean your career has to be sustainable for you know 20 25 years and um if you're trying to do too much too soon you take on too much there's a real risk of burnout so what i've tried to do 
is um, I've selected roles as I've gone along. So the more senior I've got, I've gone to different roles. I wasn't expecting to get those roles early on. Early on, the first you know four or five years, what you do is you try and develop a good clinical practice. You you want to get good at what you do clinically, so that you know a lot of things become very automated. Um, and then after that, you know you feel you know to keep yourself fresh and interested, you should take on more roles. You develop research, you take on you know uh, national roles in uh, your organisation or societies. Um, and um, and then that keeps you interested. You want to keep your week varied. If you're going to do the same thing day in, day out, there's a real risk of burnout. If you get burnout, you don't deliver clinically very well. You won't be motivated to develop a, you know, uh, a research program. And um, I think it shortens your career. So, um, you know, I just keep it varied and um, I don't, you know, want to overdo it. Um, you know, I want to pace it so that uh, I... Uh, still feel that when it's time to retire you know people will say well you know it's a shame he's retired rather than i can't wait until he goes <laughs> yeah i agree um, do you think you i mean not that you you need it or anything but did you think that there's mental support access around your field and if you ever need it in your burnout moments or if maybe you didn't have uh, and you burn out moments but personally for example I had a few over the last years and I really it was very useful for me to know who to go within my department did, did that exist in your career journey well no and I think it's something that really is lacking now there are more support services available especially in our trust but um, if you compare us to another profession say you look at um I don't know, someone working at PwC, you know, mm -hmm. big, you know, big firm. Yeah. So their partners who are professionally the equivalent of, you know, a consultant in the NHS will be getting, you know, support services, psychological support. They'll be getting, you know, someone uh, looking after them every six to eight weeks. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in my whole career, you know, no one has said that, you know what, every couple of months, why don't you just have a session with a, you know, with with a, a psycholo psychologist just to make sure that you know everything is all in order and you haven't got burnout, you're not lacking motivation, you know. Um, it just isn't there. And and that's the difference between public sector and private sector. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it is something that we should start looking at more and more, particularly mm -hmm. post-COVID, because, um, you know, a lot of clinicians are absolutely exhausted. They've worked all the way through. They've, you know, gone and helped, uh, you know, other departments. They've been redeployed. And um, people are just exhausted, you know, and there's been a real challenge. Uh, and like I said, in the last two years, have been sort of two of the most difficult years uh, mm -hmm. to have been a clinician. So, you know, if, you, if now we're talking about COVID recovery, um, they need to start uh, implementing more support services for these clinicians. Otherwise, you know, the recovery plan is not is not going to work. It has to be realistic. You know, yeah. you have to look at the welfare. We're not machines. You have to look at the welfare of the individuals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Asif, for joining Coffee Chat with Scientists. It was an absolute pleasure to have you here and very nice to meet you. 
and see you all in the next episode. Stay connected. Thank you.